Welcome to The Gathering Place, a Blessed is She podcast. We're so glad you're here. Come chat with us about Jesus, prayer, community, and life. So let's get started. Hey, Jenna. Hello. (laughs) Hey, friend. How's it going? I've seen better days, but it's getting better by the minute. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Do tell. Eventually. (laughs) (laughs) But it's amazing and getting better because the amazing Father Burns is with us today. Hi, Father. Hey, how are you? Good. Yeah, I'm glad to be back with you. This is a gift. Yeah, this is round two. I don't know if you know this, but we're only chatting with our very favorite people on this season. So you made the cut. This is called our favorite people season. (laughs) I don't know if you remember, but last time we did this, it was the first time I, so I do not do a lot of podcasts, right? And this is the first one I ever did. So I was like, wow, this is a full cycle. I'm coming back on with you where it all began. I remember that you told us it was your first podcast. I don't remember that. That's oh, amazing. Yeah. I was, it was, How it was sweet. A, a source of pride. Generous, yeah. And then another podcast with you came out before ours. Oh my gosh. And I was like, Father Burns. However, that was recorded after. This was the first podcast I ever did. Okay. I'll was it, it abiding together? It was. Oh, yeah. that's hilarious. <laughs> they were at least like a week apart. I was like, this is a little bit awkward. <laughs> Not at all. That's amazing. Father, could we ask you to introduce yourself for anyone who maybe missed that fabulous first episode? Which they must go back. What is it called? Oh, yeah. It's a fan favorite. Father, do you remember what it's called? I think it's a blooming heart. You picked the name. I wouldn't have chosen that, but that's a good choice. (laughs) (laughs) Beth is the one who picks the titles, typically. Okay. (laughs) It's a good title. Yeah, so my name is Father John Burns. I am a diocesan priest from the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. And I've been blessed to do a little bit of work with you all. A retreat, a revival night, and uh, now two of these podcasts and become good friends with you. And yeah, I just have a deep heart for healing, for forgiveness, for the restoration of hearts. And especially was blessed to, when we were all like lost and kind of afraid and confused during the the pandemic shutdowns, I was totally blessed to be able to walk with you all and and live stream the holy hours and some of the masses and the triduum especially. So I'm just happy to be at your service and trying to bring hearts before the Lord and invite the Lord to open a way for every heart. So I love doing this with you. That St. Joseph Mass, just crying. Me too. It was the best, Father. It was my husband's first introduction to you. (laughs) And he's hard to please. I should say it nicer. Anyway, he loved you, Father. So thank you for being an amazing man and witness, not only to us, but to men. And in our walk with the Lord, you've been such a gift. So thank you so much for your generosity. It's been a huge joy. That was especially anointed mass. And we've come through such a time. And we're not through, but like those were some dark months for everybody. And how powerful it is to watch the Lord continue coming into the darkness with his light through the Eucharist, through prayer, through the community. But I continue to be so convinced that your work was all laid out before all of that for the sake of, of that time and times like that when there's just chaos nowhere else to turn. The beautiful network and the apostolate that you've undertaken, I was like, Lord, for a time such as this, like I just was so convinced all throughout that he had prepared so many hearts to be able to, to get through that time and actually draw closer to each other and closer to the Lord rather than just like survive. So I just continue to rave about that to everybody and to really be convinced that this is an excellent use of technology for the sake of the gospel. Thank you. Amen. And Father, for us, you're such a part of that Mm -hmm. to look back and see that the Lord aligned and prepared 
our friendship and our like co-laboring for that season. Your friendship, your leadership, your priesthood was such a gift and a grace to us personally, but also to the whole world, mm-hmm. to, to the ministry. You think things are in one trajectory or that this was made for this particular reason or something happens for this particular reason, ultimately, the Lord does something more massive than we could ever have dreamed up. That's like the story of grace, you know, like our minds are too small, you know, like God gives these gifts to us and we're pretty sure we know what they're for, but he operates on like a fourth dimension. It's something we can't perceive. And like these gifts have an immediate valence that like they come to us and we welcome them and we sort of act upon the inspiration that follows upon them. But there's like always more to it that he's doing, you know, and it's just, it's like thicker, richer, deeper. And, and we kind of get to along the way of faith, like discover how much more he was doing than we even realized when we knew the gift, but we didn't understand how profoundly powerful that gift was. And it's multivalence, you know, like it's so many purposes, all his, that's the story of grace. It was so funny after the revivals that I was so jealous. I wasn't at the Lord knows my little heart was with you all. Beth called me, I think the next day or that night, like, I have to talk to you about what Father Byrne shared (laughs) at Revival. It was just so beautiful what you shared with me. And thankfully, Beth came home and at our little Phoenix prayer night, she also shared a bit about it to the women there. And the thing that I remember, I guess, the most from it is this idea that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what story the Lord is telling with our lives, we might come upon disappointment or we might come upon something that seems like a valley we'll never be able to cross, a chasm that we can't really discern what the Lord is doing. And ultimately, that the Lord has a plan for it all, that He's going to continue to write a story with our lives no matter what obstacle we're coming up against. That's the word I was looking for, obstacle. So Father, would you mind just sharing a little bit about what you shared in Peoria? Yeah, so uh, there number of parts to um, <laughs> what the Lord was kind of raising up there, and some of them were kind of new ideas. The overarching theme was this reality of the inbreaking of God's grace, that God's grace breaks into the world, the darkness, our hearts, our lives in ways that is so often surprising and, and novel. When we think the story is tracking in a certain direction, we can begin to draw conclusions. And, and when that direction doesn't seem to be a positive direction, we start to conclude like, oh, my, my day is ruined, my month is ruined, my life is ruined. Um, we've all felt that way about 2020, I think, in different ways, right? Uh, but the inbreaking of God's grace, it just interrupts that sort of thought process and introduces possibilities that are that transcend our, our expectations or shatter our expectations. And the, the kind of the, the prime, the image that I was using was Israel at the Red Sea. That, that Israel has escaped from slavery and it seems like everything is on track for a, a flourishing and bright future. And then they, they find the Egyptians chasing them and then they end up at the Red Sea with nowhere to go. And, you know, in that moment, it's a dead end and it's certain death. It's either returned to slavery or be slain out in the desert by the Egyptians. What a despairing moment, you know, to be like, life has come to nothing. Like, not only have I been a slave for all these years, now I die out in the wilderness. And God breaks right into that and does something totally unexpected. At the moment, it most needed, but, but even probably for Israel, a moment that seems too late. He breaks in and does something that's never happened before. And that's the thing that I always, always come back to in this is we know the story of the parting of the Red Sea. We've seen the movie. We learned about it when we were little kids in school. That's a very um, familiar biblical story. 
The Israelites had never seen God do something like that ever. It didn't exist in salvation history. So there was no way to expect that God would intervene like that. And when he did, it was just how astonishing it had to be to be like, this is my God. Like my Lord opens a way in the sea. There was, there was nothing here. This was death. And here now God has broken in and rescued me profoundly. So that theme of the, the inbreaking of God's grace, it's novelty, it's unexpected way of, of saving us, God's way of doing that. And then how important it is for us to like familiarize ourselves with the way he's done that in our stories. Right back to the Bible, like right when Israel comes through the Red Sea and, you know, their captors are drowned in the sea, Moses composes a, a hymn. He writes a hymn that contains the, the mighty works of God and, and praises God and glorifies God. And then Miriam as well has a hymn that she, they both sing. And the design of this hymn is, is meant to be transmitted down through the generations. The Israelites are meant to be sure that they remember what God did, how mighty it was, how powerful it was, and how unexpected it was. The design of the hymn is to make sure that Israel remembers that when they thought they were dead, God came through. And I think that's not just for the sake of memory. It's for the sake of future scenarios where it seems like the dead end is here again, or there's a new way that I'm perishing, or there's a new irresolvable dilemma, or my life has amounted to nothing. Like, ah, I thought that before too. And God came through. Let's actually look beyond this obstacle to the horizon and be willing to believe that God is so profoundly in love with his creatures that he comes to their rescue over and over again and always in ways unexpected and maybe even like unsearched for or unsought. So I talked there about that, that hymn of Israel. And then I was mentioning to you earlier, these hymns are found all through the Old Testament. These, these hymns that sing the praise of God's glory and how often Israel was transmitting these hymns. We see them in the Psalms, especially like bringing these hymns forward in their tradition so that Israel could always sing God's praises by remembering well what God had done to save them when it seemed like everything was lost. And that's a, a guard for them against forgetfulness. Because as we see this pattern throughout the prophets, especially whenever Israel forgets, Israel wanders off and becomes unfaithful to God and follows other gods. And then eventually she ends up infertile. Her, her lands and her blessings dry up. Over and against the pattern that the prophets are calling them back to of remembering, remembering well. And when Israel remembers what God has done, she's faithful to God. When she's faithful to God, she's fertile. The land bears fruit and the blessings are abundant. And that pattern like really lies over all of our lives, the new covenant reality that, that when we forget what God has done, we're going to wander off and we're going to think the darkness is impenetrable and that this must be our death or it's not worth even trying to, to take one step forward into this darkness. Whereas if we remember well and we kind of let the character of grace sit as a banner over our lives, we can come through anything because we realize like no darkness is too dark for God and he's conquered the darkness. He's conquered death and he's opened the veil. So there's a way where there was no way. That was incredible. Wasn't that a great talk? Yeah. Wow. To use modern language, they've come through this trauma, this like generational trauma of being enslaved. And then it seems like they're in the clear, but now they're being pursued by their enemies and they're at the shores of the Red Sea. And you said it, Father, if they go forward, they'll die. If they go back, they'll die. And there's this thing in me that feels that so deeply. Mm. Like, I thought we came through this. I thought it was smooth sailing from here on out. Why are we here again? Another problem, another insurmountable obstacle, another seemingly certain death. Why does this keep happening, right? 
but it's because we've forgotten. It's because we don't trust. Like, talk to me through that for anyone who's feeling like, I just came out of something and here we are again. Maybe the circumstances look different, but the despair or the fear is the same. Yeah, you know why? So first off, why God does some of this is always a mystery. Why he lets us continue suffering, except that we can say whenever God is at work, we know that he's, he's, he's working to bring out like the image of Christ in us more perfectly. And so if the Lord continues to allow trials, at least in my life, I, I know it's because I'm not finished growing in my need to consent to him and surrender to him and ask for help. And so often what these trials are doing is, is dragging something out of us that is, is old and, and needs to die, some pattern of behavior, some self-reliance or some confidence that every trial is overcome and now I can just skate through. The Lord kind of keeps on um, pressing on these things to break down artificial structures we built up that aren't supposed to be there, self-reliance or um, idolatry, you know, the expectation that other people could save us or relationships are enough or a set of, you know, acquiring my goals or possessions would, would finally save me. These are like minor forms of idolatry and the Lord kind of pushes us down past those to to break these, they're, they're small things to him, but to us, they've built up as a structure in which we kind of live and navigate the world. So he often lets us hit these repetitive trials because he's not finished helping things to die in us that need to die and thereby bringing life out of us that's supposed to, that will more adequately represent the life of Christ. A life, as, as we see in the scriptures, is lived in total obedience to the Father I'm not reliant on anything but the Father's will and striving always to glorify the Father instead of to glorify man or to, to glorify the self. So the repetitiveness of some of those sufferings is exhausting for us. And we just always have to beg for faith and kind of put the frame of faith around it to be like, all right, Lord, you are allowing me to suffer because you still have more to do in me and you still want me to trust you and love you more perfectly. So there's a way of like approaching those things is actually seeing them as opportunities it sure doesn't feel like, oh, this is an exciting opportunity to suffer again. But we look at the saints, they're experts in suffering, you know, like they're experts in suffering. And they, they find through the cross always intimacy with God, which is what we're all searching for in the end anyways, is to know God better, to love God more perfectly. It's what our hearts long for. Often he's coming to us in the, in the guise of sufferings so that he can crush something that has to be crushed and thereby bring forth something that otherwise is kind of trapped inside, which is the life of Christ in us. Yeah, I've been kind of navigating an old and and deep pain in my life. And it's it complex. It involves a lot of people and a lot of memory. And I feel like this is the first time I understood, and maybe it's because it's so visceral. Maybe it's because it's been so intense. It's the first time I, I feel like I can see clearly I don't want to waste this suffering. I want it to make me holy. I don't just want to white knuckle my way through this. And really, I'm at a point, maybe it's the year, right, of, of 2020, like not having reserves, not being able to fall on like these other systems or people that I could normally place my security in. But because all of those other things have been stripped away, I don't have a lot to give in this situation in this season of suffering. And I am determined to let it make me holy. Yes. There's a, a quote, I probably won't find it to give like an adequate citation, but uh, it's St. John of the Cross when he talks about suffering and the saints. And, and he's asking this question, like, why aren't there more saints? 
he points out that God makes saints through suffering because that's the pattern of Jesus Christ. That's the pattern that, that set for us into heaven. He says, God offers small trials and some people afraid of the, the pain that they will bring flee from them, turn from the way of suffering, avoiding it. And so God relents or God, you know, releases the, the trial and, and he saves them from the pain that they seem to think is too much. He says that often... The Lord has a plan to bring these people to even greater sanctity through greater suffering, but they turn from the suffering and are afraid of it and so aren't willing to let it be sanctifying. They see it as an obstacle instead of a way deeper into the passion of Christ and thus greater conformity to Jesus Christ and thus greater union with the Father, Son, and Spirit in the spiritual life. What he's getting at is the Lord wants to make us holy through suffering. Very often we turn from the suffering in fear and so the Lord doesn't give the next trial, which is actually the next entryway into a greater and greater and a higher perfection, a higher union with Jesus Christ who undertook the greatest of sufferings. So there's this real in the tradition, the Carmel interest, especially this real way of seeing suffering as opportunity and that it's actually the way God makes saints, but he doesn't force us to suffer. Like we can turn from it and he'll relent. But if we do recognize it as coming from his hand and we do kind of like lean into it and we accept like, God, you are doing this to make me holy. Teach me to suffer with you well. Very often it leads us to a new place of grace which eventually will contain also new suffering that's perhaps even greater. But it's because we've been fortified to bear that suffering. And the Lord is drawing us along the pathway to a higher place, uh, to move up higher into union with the Lord, which is the ultimate aspiration of our heart anyways. And so John of the Cross shares as kind of a lamentation, like there are a lot of saints we don't have because people turn from suffering. Those who press through, the Lord uh, blesses and then tries again. And the trials and the blessings increase as they grow in conformity with Jesus Christ. We've talked a lot about this year, and it feels like we're all kind of in our own, you know, trials or tests. I'm thinking even of this experience I had on my eight-day retreat earlier this year, and I spent many holy hours on the front end of the retreat just telling Jesus my story. Even though I have seen the Lord use and come through many of those difficulties, it was a challenge not to look back and be sad. Or like still feel the disappointment. And, you know, I'm kind of preaching to myself here. Like when we look back and there's grief there, there, that means there's an invitation to healing. But gosh, sometimes it just feels so heavy to look back at our past. And whether that's our own sin or ways that we've been sinned against, whether it's rejection or, or disappointment, how do we sort of bring our story before the Lord how do we, do we grieve it? What's the next step here when you're not ready to compose a hymn of victory? You know, <laughs> what do we do with that? So one thing, Beth, that you said that that's really important um, is that readiness to compose the hymn, you know, like maybe we're not ready to compose a hymn of Thanksgiving. Um, a good question for us as we look back over our lives is, um, what dominates the sort of cognitive landscape? You know, I remember reading in Father Jean Delbay's book, I Believe in Love, He's like, we remember our sins so easily. Why do we not store up a treasury of our reconciliations? Why are we not ready at hand with uh, the announcement of the many, many times that all of those sins were conquered by Jesus Christ through the sacrament of reconciliation? And ought those not occupy a more dominant place in our memory? Like, yes, terrible sin, terrible pain, terrible darkness, but all of it has been overcome because here I am in the present, a believer who's able to articulate the fact that I stand in grace. Please, God. So is there a way to check the way we remember and and just like looking at those moments of victory to be like, okay, 
even if I feel as though most of my life has been dominated by pain and darkness, and I just don't like looking back because that kind of gets gloomy, can I find a way to, to identify the spots in the story where it's very clear that God won? And can I sing those, even if it's only like one or two for now? Because what we're doing is, is performing an act of glorification and gratitude, and that always disposes the heart to recognize we've received more than we deserve, and that opens us to sort of spot the other places where we've been given gifts beyond our understanding and beyond those that we deserve. So there's this question about how are we remembering? One other important thing about what you're naming there, Beth, is the need to to pull on something from literary theory, which is a distinction between story and narrative. And I find this really fascinating. Within literature and literary critique, they talk about story as the chronological flow of events, one leading to the next. The narrative is how those events are recounted how a narrator uh, chooses parts of the story, pulls them together to craft a a picture of who the person is or or where the person's come from. We are always narrating to uh, other people and to ourselves. You know, when you ask me who I am at the beginning of the show, I I grab a couple little parts and I put them together. That's not the whole picture of me. There's parts I could have mentioned I didn't. There's parts I'd rather not mention and I tend not to mention. Beneath that, there are parts also in all of our stories that we hope no one ever really sees that we wish weren't there and were embarrassed by or afraid of. The, the beauty of healing and the journey of um, learning to actually recognize the presence of God in all of this and giving thanks and glorifying God is the recognition that often there's a gap between the narrative and the story. There's a way that I remember it that is conditioned by the pain I felt afterwards, the disappointment, as well as the elation and the joy. I have a certain narrative that may or may not adequately represent the story. This is where our prayer comes in. God is present to the story in its essence the whole way through, beginning, middle, and end. And so we can always come before the Lord, as you were talking about on retreat, Beth, as you start to tell your story to God or narrate your life to him, looking back, especially on the past, we can always ask, God, is this an adequate narrative? Am I underemphasizing or overemphasizing parts? Am I skipping over parts? And if so, why? What's there? Is there, is there work you want to do with me there, Lord? And ultimately, the question is, how can I let you, Lord, by grace, integrate the narrative with the story or pull the way that I perceive the story into the way that you perceive it? Because the Lord, in his perfect will, understands everything that has happened in our story up to now and everything that will happen and how it all fits into the possibility of of salvation, of grace, of healing and wholeness. So, Lord, like, how do you see my story? Here's how I remember it. And I don't like remembering it or I, I wish these parts weren't there. But Lord, you let them be there, and some of them you put there. How do you see me, and how do you see my story? And and where are those different? Like, where do I lament and regret, and where am I ashamed of things that you actually, Lord, want me to, to hold up to you rather than to hide? Because as we look back over the story, that hiding is always the perpetuation of sin. Coming out of hiding and, and thus allowing God to integrate is always the work of grace. So this distinction between story and narrative, and in our prayer very practically, Where am I afraid of remembering? Where am I not remembering well, Lord? And how do you see it? How can I remember with you adequately, Lord, that the way I understand myself in the present would better represent how you see me now in view of where you want to take me, which includes the whole of my past? I'm kind of starting to do this with my spiritual director. And as I was talking a little bit about my story, and I'm reading uh, St. Ignatius' story to really be like the guiding example of how to tell your story and walk with your story to know where the Lord is in all of it. I just like realized for the first time, 
Well, there is a lot of parts of me that are like compartmentalized. And the Jenna that I show to the world and believed I am, the Jenna I am, does not include many of these parts in my past that are like very compartmentalized because they do not line up with the person that I see myself to be. And that I truly believe the Lord has made me to be. I'm not trying to say like I'm like being dual faced or duplicitous. I just really feel like there are parts that don't quite match this person. I believe I'm a new creation and that those things like don't exist. And so I have a hard time reconciling like the Lord wants to still turn the lights on in that area of darkness with this idea that we are made new. So I guess my question is, how can both of those things be true at the same time? I think you can make a pretty good analogy between sacred scripture and our stories. It's not a perfect analogy because our stories aren't the same thing as a divinely inspired text. When we meditate on the scriptures, the text is alive, right? The Holy Spirit's on the other side of that text. And, and this is why we can pray with the same verse every day for a year and, and always be learning more and, and discovering something beautiful, deep and true. The scriptures themselves are filled with moments of darkness, trial. Like they're not just a story of glory and grace. They're that for sure. But in there are all these hiccups, these potholes, these moments of great sin and darkness. Our story, in a similar way, we can sort of take up an attitude of, of curiosity, of faithfulness, of surrender in the way that we look back with the Lord. You know, it can be exhausting to look back over our stories, too. Sometimes we just want to be like, I just don't want to look back. And at times, that's a healthy and important thing because we can also become narcissistic or get trapped in darkness or, you know, memory of past sins can be further temptation. So we need to be prudent about this. But taking the high-level view and looking back over our stories with the Lord is really kind of like reading scripture. It's an analogy, it's not perfect. But with the scriptures, we're always learning more and more about what God is doing and how it relates to where we are now. Same with our story. As we look back and kind of address the narrative and see how God sees the story, there's this way that God continuously re-narrates the story to us and shows us how, um, as you're saying, Jenna, like in the present moment, we're made new. You're made new, not just because of the moments of victory, the moments of victory came about because of some of the moments of darkness. And your consent to this novelty of grace now includes the whole of your, your journey. Because your understanding of your need for grace, the goodness of God, your desire to surrender, to live your vocation fully, that all is a state of mind and heart that, that reflects where you've come from, which includes all these parts that are kind of painful and dark. The Lord has a way of like telling us about that and, and really in an inspired fashion showing us that we sort of read the scripture, as it were, of our lives and learn more about who God is, who we are before God, and how he's coming to us over and over again, even in view of some of those pits and valleys and darknesses, to bring us to the place where here at present we could desire to be made whole. We could desire to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We could desire to live the abundant life in grace. We make those statements not in spite of what's happened to us, but because the whole thing has formed how we are here and now. If we're able to surrender to God more perfectly, it's in part because of the journey, which includes darkness and light. God has a way of recounting that to us in a manner that, that liberates the whole and leads us to, to welcome him both in trial as in grace and consent to him here and now in view of tomorrow. We kind of have to listen to the Holy Spirit and be, be open to prompting as to whether or not we do need to go back, you know, and remembering is always in view of the future when we're talking about the economy of salvation. Like if we are 
If we're seeking to remember better, it's because we want to know God better in order to be able to live in the Lord better tomorrow, today and tomorrow. And uh, yeah, it's just a fragile balance we have to carry. Like we can get stuck in the past, you know, or, or live in the past in a way that's also just like kind of crippling. When we have a season like this where the Lord clearly is inviting us to all of us to sort of be like, what's going on? Why am I reacting this way? Where is this coming from? Um, it's a holy invitation very often to to remember differently. But it's just, yeah, it's such a balance that we have to kind of carry. Like, I guess something I've been learning in, in some of these retreats is on the front end, so we have to be willing to go there when the Lord is making it clear that we need to go there. We don't have to go there all the time. What I've found on these, these healing retreats, these eight-day healing retreats that I've been doing, the initial response of most people is like, ah, I've gone back to my story so many times. I don't have the energy for that now. I don't want to get stuck. I don't want to ruin my good mood or whatever it might be. And the end, at the end of eight days, so this is a long retreat, obviously, but the the message is almost consistently like, well, I didn't realize that the Lord still had a word for me in a number of these places. And I didn't realize that I was able, I would be able to to bring these places before the Lord and just in weakness crumble before him and let him come to me and rescue me. In the end, what they say is that like it was it was a game changer to give the Lord another chance to, to recast the narrative and to to show the beauty of his presence, even when it seemed like he couldn't have been there because it was just so dark. So all that just to say, like a willingness to, to go and revisit our past when the Lord is clearly making it a thing that, that he wants to do with us, but also we never want to get stuck there and we always want to do it in view of, of the hope of salvation and the desire in the present moment to move toward that with greater awareness of how powerful God is and that he will use sufferings as well as joys to to bring Christ out in us and to bring us into Christ. I think the key, and you're stressing this in a really beautiful way, is that invitation from the Lord. Yes, I love that. I think when, when you're describing these people on your healing retreats who do not want to re-engage their story, I feel for them. I feel them. <laughs> but it's different when the Lord is inviting us to look again, and it's different with that beautiful definition of narrative. Because I think many times when we've gone back and tried to examine our story or make sense of our story, there's a lot of striving on our part to make sense of it, to mm. make it okay, to tie it up in a bow, right? But what you're suggesting is that at the Lord's invitation, the Lord will give the new perspective, the narrative, the defining word. And that's different than our fact-finding or, yeah, doing it in our, in our own effort. And this is where I think also we have to be willing to surrender methodologies and even the desire for clarity. Like my spiritual director the other day, I was saying, I just want clarity. And he's like, be careful. Sometimes clarity is a euphemism for control and planning. And I was like, oh man, yes, that's what I want. I want to know exactly what I need to do and I want to be in control of the situation. That's not holy clarity. But clarity, of course, can be a good thing. But I think we have to come to a place of this, uh, of realizing that God's grace, God's word to us, God's work in our lives is just often so very deep. It's not something we can really put words to or understand. Um, this is where we talk about John of the Cross uses the language of the secret work of grace or the, or the deep work of the Lord in the soul. When we are always moving into the Lord and, and granting God space in our lives to, to inspire us, to speak, to, to transform us by his gifts, 
God does work that sometimes we just don't understand. And we're not really able to articulate back up at the surface why we can abide in our story a little bit more peacefully. Why suddenly something that used to be so difficult to recall is now um, integrated into an understanding of God's work in our lives to bring us to glory. He does things in our souls that we just don't really understand. And, and we don't have to. We just have to be willing to believe that his healing work is always unfolding whenever he's active in our lives, whenever we're putting ourselves before him in prayer and when grace is unfolding. And so sometimes that maybe is a buttress against the exhaustion or just yeah, feeling totally drained by disappointments, the past, sin, wounds. Um, when we come, when the Lord invites us to come into those places, he's going to work there. Um, the Lord doesn't invite us for naught. He doesn't invite us without a plan. And when the Lord draws us into these places, he wants to to, to do some deep work of un, unhooking things or unfolding things, massaging out places that have been bound, breaking down calluses within. We can't always explain exactly what happened. We just realize that in the present, we are well, or at least better than we started. And, and that's just how God works. He, he eludes our capacities to articulate and to name the structure of his work sometimes. We want to put it into words and understand it, but very often he's just inviting us to let him to let him rescue us. And we aren't really going to be able to explain why. We can just say, yeah, I am better. I'm well. I'm loved. I'm healed. I'm whole. God did it. <laughs> I don't know how he did it, but God did it. And that's just how grace works. It's, it's sometimes secret in the soul and we can't put words to it. I was just thinking about sometimes we can go to prayer with an agenda or like, okay, today we're going to be getting into my story, Lord, and (laughs) got some work to do there. Instead of that, is there a posture we should have in prayer where it's not just this like agenda of, Lord, I do feel your invitation to get into my story, so we're going to do it. And here's the formula that Father Burns gave me, (laughs) (laughs) or I think I heard Father Burns give me. What is our posture to allow that healing and is it always you know an agenda or or our own plan i love that question because it's something that i've been sort of exploring in direction with people and in my own journey because we often just have these moments where like miracles are known to us we we realize we've been changed healed made whole and we can't quite explain it and then sometimes we fall into the temptation of like i want that to happen again so what did i do there the first time what's steps one two and three so i can always have this right and that's our preference for methodologies. And even, frankly, in prayer, like, I, I love all of the different methods we have for prayer. And I teach them and I practice them. But sometimes it becomes an obstacle for people. It gets in the way of just, like, really praying. You know, really praying is just being with the Lord who, who is. You know, like, I am who am. Like, God just is. And when we, when we sit before the Lord and just surrender to him, we... We welcome his work without our need to climb up into it or to establish a pathway there to by our own efforts. We just welcome his hand to, to rest upon our hearts and do what it does. The image that's lately been coming to me is really, and this is from my own experience on my retreat, it's like, it's like the Lord places his hand on our hearts. We can't see our heart underneath the hand. We can't name what's happening there. We just know that it is happening. And I was thinking about like all the miracle stories. So the, 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 the deaf man, the blind man, the crippled, the Lord placed his hands on them. They couldn't probably like physiologically, biologically articulate what was going on in them. They just know that the Lord placed his hand and then they were healed. And, and the Lord sort of does that in our prayer when we, when we choose to just restfully abide in his gaze. He just does. And according to his plan, which is better than ours. 
There's a story someone was sharing with me recently of a series of holy hours in which they fell asleep during the holy hour against their best efforts. And it was persistent for like several days in a row. And they'd wake up from, it was like a five minute drift, but they'd wake up in like a different place in the sort of flow of prayer and um, kind of better. And they were a little bit troubled about that and wondering if it's okay. And then learning that like, yeah, this is just what's happening. But in the end, they're able to conclude like, the Lord was working even in, in the silence. And while they were sort of dozing, they were least able to be methodological and least able to impose themselves on the work of God and tell him what needed to happen and respond with steps A, B, and C to one, two, and three and all these things. They just had to receive and not even in a sense of attentiveness or awareness, just being there. Coming out of that, they were better. <laughs> and they just knew God's grace was at work and there was no way to explain what he was doing. They just were profoundly aware that he had done it. I think that's one of the goals of prayer is to, to be so disposed in faith to believe that God, whenever we place ourselves before him, wants to change us into uh, himself and to bring out the image of Christ and wants to change us for the good, transform us by grace. We don't always have to be the, the protagonists of that. In fact, we ought not be. We rather have to welcome his work, which is deep and mysterious and, and eludes our methodologies very often. And our task is simply to consent, to say yes, to welcome that, and in faith to just believe. Lord, here I am. I know you are here. I place myself in your presence. Inspire me. And then to just sit there. And God does what he does, which is make us whole, heal us, save us. Father, we could just keep talking to you all day. (laughs) Could I ask you to close us in prayer? Yeah, of course. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we love you, and we believe in you. We recognize that our love for you fades in comparison to your love for us. So we humble our hearts before the magnitude, the intensity, the beauty, the richness of your love. We reverence the secret work of your grace in our souls, and we acknowledge that in the time we've shared, Lord, you have been about the work of inspiration, that you have You've opened us to welcome you more perfectly and more freely. And in this prayer, Lord, we just surrender to you again. We believe in you. Help all those places where we suffer from unbelief, doubt, and fear. Pour your Holy Spirit upon us now, Lord God, and always, please, that we would see just how good you are, that we would welcome you into all the places within, especially the places where we're not so sure, and then thus consenting to you and welcoming you, we would become like you, We would learn to love you more perfectly and learn to love those you place before us with hearts like unto yours, opened, pierced, healed, and glorified. Dear Mama Mary, please place your mantle of love, humility, purity over our hearts that we would always grow, that we would become ever more beautiful, pleasing, delightful to your Son. Lead us in the pathways of this earth to carry hope as we walk in faith and to practice love in all things. We ask all of this in the great confidence that we bear within our souls, giving thanks for all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Burns. My friends, always a joy. Sometime we'll hang out together in person. We've got much more to talk about. Hopefully not lose this audio file now. You won't. Lord, hear our prayer. So my friend, if you feel the Lord inviting you to get his narrative, his perspective on your story. We have just the thing for you. 
Um, Nell O'Leary has written beautiful resource to help you pray through your story and and share it with the Lord. It's called Write and Pray. You can get it on the website, in the shop, as you do. There's even some sweet videos. You know the link, blessedisshe.net, and then you can type in the little search bar, Write and Pray. It's nine sessions of her guiding you through reading scripture and then just diving into your own story, writing your story and praying with the Lord. So cool. I'm excited for you. Go grab it. Bye-bye. Bye.